the Pro Wrestling Bowl. 35 short stories, including Harley Race, Ricky Morton, Tracy Smothers, and Tim Storm. Along with 300 photos from the independent scene. Taken from Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Get your book today by going to WrestleVille.com or LanceByChance.com. WrestleVille, it's where wrestling lives. Are you a fan of pro wrestling, comedy, and combat sports? Then we have the podcast for you, because we cover that and much, much more. Do you like to debate with your friends? Do we have the perfect segment for you? It's the 531, where we take any given subject, break it down to a top five. From there, we debate it down to three, and then into that number one spot. If you want to get a hold of us, find us on our social media. Search Working Fans Podcast on any major social media platform. And if you want to find the podcast, search for us on any major podcast platform as well as YouTube. Working Fans Podcast. We put in the work so you don't have to. We want to take a minute to thank our newest sponsor on the show, 482 Designs. That is F-O-U-R, the number is 82 Designs. 482 Designs. You can find them on Facebook by looking up F-O-U-R, 82 Designs, at F-O-U-R, 82 Designs on Instagram. And if you want to email them, Go to four82designs at gmail.com. Pretty soon, we're going to be rolling out some high-quality T-shirts and stickers that were just done by the sponsor. Please check them out for any of your screen printing needs. First off, it's a light years better than our first one. Also, we survived the washer and dryer. They look good, and they're good quality. Nice. And those stickers before Paco chewed them up were amazing. And luckily, we'll be getting some more in, hopefully, before we start selling them to fans. But that's F-O-U-R-8-2 Designs. Guys, welcome back to the Working Fans Comedy Cast, episode 47. And happy new year. We are starting the new year by reviewing comedy movies on the Comedy Cast. So today, we brought in a special guest to talk Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But first, the show is brought to you by the pro wrestling vault volume one you can pick it up at wrestleville.com or lancebychance.com it is written by vinnie berry the man that wrote lance by chance wrestling is Von eric two very great books that you can pick up and give to somebody now we are joined by carney usada you might have seen him on the combat cast man they call dave how was your new year's guys where did this cat come from Oh no, <laughs> that motherfucker! <laughs> Watch out for him, man. I don't know. I've been trying to get rid of that gangster for years. <laughs> I'm coming for you, cat, cat, cat. <laughs> now, guys, we are here because we're kind of starting a new format. The five three ones got a little tough for comedy, so we're starting to talk movies now. And we started with Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's kind of a comedy take on King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table embarking on a surreal low-budget search for the holy grail encountering many very silly obstacles i got that description from imdb.com yo so i was saying to you joe earlier in the day and carney i started to talk to you about it this movie everybody loves it i'm kind of in the middle like it's okay but like i'm just not the super fan that so many of my good friends are and like our comedy choices generally line up pretty good we've talked stand-up Chappelle show other stuff you know, but there's something about this one. And I don't know if it's because it's the British comedy or what. I, I get it. There's a lot of subtle jokes. It's all under the delivery, it appears. But 
Carney, talking to you a little bit before this, you're you're kind of more of a super fan of this, and I'm just I just want to kind of start off like, what is it that really draws you into this movie? First off, I want to say I appreciate you gentlemen having me on. I know I wasn't your first choice. Our friend Scott was supposed to be on the show. I know once he started recording, he had been sacked. And uh, fortunately, he was replaced by this majestic moose. Mm. So, yes, I'm a, I guess you can say, super fan of this film. I haven't watched it in years, but I probably still retain enough information about it that I can talk about it for longer than the film's runtime. So there's something about it. Short version is I first saw it as a kid because the guy that my mom was dating at the time had me watch it when I was like under 10. And when I'm, let's say, eight or nine years old, I don't really have a good grasp on British comedy or Mm. comedy in general. None of the jokes landed. I didn't understand it. I didn't notice it was a comedy. I didn't even notice that the cast were doing the majority of the, the parts themselves, like playing multiple characters. It wasn't until the rabbit scene that I was like, oh, that's kind of silly. And then a couple of years later, I watched it again. And then one night I was watching Flying Circus. I'm like, hey, I know these guys. And then it just kind of went from there where the more I watched it, the more I picked up on stuff. I'm sure we'll probably talk about it throughout this podcast. There's a lot of really brilliant stuff that happens in the course of that movie. And I don't know what you guys have planned for a format, but at some point I could probably even talk about what makes it special in terms of its presentation. But there's a lot to get into that I can't just cover as like, oh, I like it because like right. it does fit the typical comedy format because of, you know, X, Y, Z. I know that Joe had mentioned that it was this, this take on King Arthur and his court at the same time. It's, we're talking about really intelligent actors there's no reason this comedy troupe should have happened you had graham chapman who turned down being a doctor you have john cleese who was studying to become a lawyer and these guys were part of a comedy troupe that weren't afraid to just be completely silly and over the top and poke fun at themselves and make this really silly thing where it's timeless because the jokes it's not so like you can watch these old films that are based on let's say you can watch a film that's based on king arthur and it could be very dated but then you watch this and the jokes are just so timeless that you can watch this like 40, another 45 years from now and you're not going to have to explain to some child like what the, the reference, the source material is. Like they obviously studied this, they know what they were talking about and they didn't take it too seriously. And that's why I love it. Yeah, you know, um, I have to say, so one thing that clicked with me when watching this the other night was the swamp castle scene. The guys, the kids in the castle... And he wants to like sing and his dad won't keep cutting him off. But there's this little parts in there where he's talking to him and he accidentally just calls him mother. And he's like, father. And he's like, you know, and then like he would, the dad would like, you know, not say his name right. It was that kind of subtle humor. That was the stuff I really liked about it. Like I really enjoyed that scene. I did like where he's coming and stabbing everybody. And then he's, uh, you know, like. And then they're like, just kind of like nonchalant. We're like, oh, don't worry about that, you know? And I don't know. That was like one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Joe, did you have like a particular favorite scene from this or? Well, I'll get to favorite scenes in a little bit. I want to bring up a couple things because as you guys kind of said, it kind of falls between people being a big fan of this movie and not. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it got a 97% on the tomato meter a 95% in the audience score. I'm going to get to people's comments later, and you're going to see most people love it. Some people didn't. Now, before, because Carney brought up how each person played various roles, before I get to that, George Harrison actually said that he felt Monty Python was like the spiritual successor to the Beatles because Python started when the Beatles ended and just kind of the spirit they brought to comedy. Now, 
looking at the movie real quick, Graham Chapman played King Arthur, the voice of God, Middlehead, Hickoff and Guard. John Cleese plays the second Swallow Savvy Guard, the Black Knight, Peasant Number Three, Sir Lancelot the Brave, a taunting French guard, Eric Idle. Like these are the main Python cast members. Dead Collector, Peasant One, Sir Robin, the not quite so brave as Sir Lancelot, First Swamp Castle Guard, Terry Gilliam, the director of the movie, is playing Patsy Green Knight, Old Man from Scene 24, multiple roles. So these guys really, they were all involved in creating this thing, which is wild. And a thing that should be mentioned is if I remember correctly, again, I'm full of useless movie trivia. You know, I've, I've often told people, well, not necessarily related to movies, my trivia knowledge comes down to, I've told people in my family, I'll never remember your birthday, but I'll never forget the code to jump straight to Mike Tyson and punch out. So the same can be applied when it comes to movie trivia. I could probably be, you could probably just bring me to a bar and I'd know the most obscure movie facts. So with this, from what I remember, and I could be wrong on it, but I believe that for the most part, Terry Gilliam allowed the majority of the cast to do the scenes that they wrote so like if this was your idea this is your scene uh. and and he had a lot of control with that and of course he butted heads a lot with people like i can't remember it was mostly john cleese having the problem with terry jones or if it was terry gilliam where it's like you're you have this guy that was essentially part of your 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 gang your troop but now you kind of have to answer to him for things. And Terry Gilliam was so used to doing just the animated stuff that now he takes over in this movie and now he has all these ideas and he's very precise and like everything has to be done this way. And it, I was surprised to learn there wasn't a lot of improvising in this. Uh, from what I remember, I think like hundreds of pages, according to one of the cast members, had been thrown out and they narrowed it down to like those 90 minutes that you see that's pretty much the 90 minutes that they had to use because they had nothing else. So I'm sure there's probably a lot of ingenious ideas that got thrown out the window just to make time for this. And with those scenes, they were all kind of like, you have to look at them as individual skits that were almost like pieced together. There's really like, it's not like there's a lot of overlapping in stories other than a few parts throughout. It's kind of like you watch those scenes again, it's almost like isolated jokes and it all comes together. And some of the jokes do come full circle. And one quick point I'll make about that Beatles reference is people have compared Monty Python to the Beatles in the sense that they worked brilliantly as a unit. And a lot of times there was a lot of tension. They may not have always gotten along, but when the camera was on, it was magic. And then some of them did find success solo, but they've often said that once one of them is gone, they can't be Monty Python anymore. You can't replace Graham Chapman. It's a very tragic story what happened with him. But once he was done, which I think it was around the 20th anniversary of Monty Python, he died like the day before, something like that. He ruined the, the, the anniversary. So either way, they're like, yeah, we can't go on as Monty Python without Graham Chapman. Terry Gilliam said that. He said it was kind of like with the Beatles. Once John Lennon died, it wasn't like the Beatles anymore. And while George Harrison did fund part of Life of Brian, there's actually a fun fact that Part of this movie was produced by Chrysalis Records, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Elton John, because I guess the tax situation in England was so out of hand around that time that artists wanted to put their money into something almost that you can help with your taxable income. And that's how some of this movie got funded. 
I believe Pink Floyd were such fans of Monty Python that they had said that while they were recording, I believe, Dark Side of the Moon, they used to take breaks to watch Flying Circus. I saw there was a, this is a little off topic, but I saw there was, I wanted to ask you guys about this, and I don't know if we'll get a chance to, so this could be something we come back to later. But I saw there was an issue with some British Board of Film Classification. They were upset about how many times they said Jesus Christ. Like in that scene where the cow comes flying at him and stuff. <laughs> like apparently he actually said it like three times in the original uncut version, and they had to like switch it up a little bit. Did you guys ever see anything about that? It, well, I, while I don't remember anything about that necessarily, I would say that I know that there were problems with the filming because while they had originally planned to film in uh, various castles, I, if I remember correctly, I think it was Scotland. I can't remember exactly where they're going to film, and then the government's like, "You're not going to like." essentially sully our castles with this garbage and so that's why they used like one that was privately owned and everything else was a model cardboard yeah cardboard from like 30 feet away terry gilliam was saying and he said it was just the way the camera was angled that almost made it look like a castle now just to get back to the format a little bit this was written by graham chapman john cleese eric idle basic all of monty python with Thomas Mallory being uncredited. It was directed by Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones and produced by Mark Forstater and Michael White were producers. John Goldstone was an executive producer. And like I said, it was funded with money from rock bands as well. So, Carney, what are some of your favorite scenes from the film and kind of what do you think makes it special? Because you were going to say earlier. What I think makes it special is... It has to come back to who Monty Python are. This is a group that they had pretty much, it was, there was no leader. There's no one face of Monty Python. It was a group effort and everything that they did, they did as a team, they teamed up to write things. Uh, I remember when Graham Chapman was struggling with his alcohol, I believe it was John Cleese that was paired with him that I think he kind of like broke off for a bit because he couldn't just, he couldn't deal with them, stuff like that. So like, again, going back to the whole Beatles thing, like just as a unit, they put together this this brilliant film and the reason why i think it's brilliant again it goes back to the fact that those jokes transcend we got these guys who as i said being very intelligent they don't try to slap you in the face with how smart the jokes are even the scene when arthur is talking to the peasant and they're going deep into like this social commentary of oppression etc you know they're using very we'll say sophisticated verbiage and they're not trying to hit you over the head of look how smart we are with this they're making this peasant to be this really intelligent person and when he gets under the king's skin he actually gets physical with him as if as, as if to say like he's lost this argument to this peasant and like the jokes are so subtle and they come full circle and you have to watch look at the them. violence inherent in the system <laughs> oh my god yeah there it is and and some of the jokes are so subtle and upon multiple viewings you will catch many things that you have missed that first time so hmm. i'll just say while i could go into several scenes my favorite scene which dave touched on earlier is i believe it's uh lancelot storming the castle yes and that whole thing with that five times shot of him running up the hill and you got the drums and it just cuts back to them looking out in the distance and i don't know where it's the haha and he stabs the one guard and the other one's like, hey, and he's tearing through this wedding party and he is killing like the bridesmaids. He kicks the bride in the chest. He's yeah. like storming up the castle. He like, he like cuts down the dude that has a basket of fruit on his head. And so 
just even the dialogue that when the father comes back into the scene, and I don't remember the quote, because again, it's been a long time, but he says something to the effect of, you murdered the bride's dad. And he goes, I didn't mean to. He goes, you put your sword through his head. And he goes, oh God, is he going to be okay? Like yeah. there's so much funny stuff in that scene because it's so absurd and ridiculous and over the top. I mean, everything from even when, was it Concord? Well, you know, takes the, the, like, even when, all right, we'll have to go back to when that, that like feeble Prince dude, when he just like scribbles on a piece of paper and like quickly fires the arrow out the window and it hits oh, Concord yeah. in the chest. And it's like this, fully written note of help i'm being held captive and right and the whole thing with the father like with the the bride's dad who he's not quite dead yet which is one of those lines that's you know just frequent throughout the film and then like just when he thought he was gonna recover he felt the you know icy hand of death and they like, killed the bride's dad and obviously he had the ulterior motives for wanting to have his son married off but it was just such a stupid stupid scene but i could go into more that's my absolute favorite scene of the film it's interesting. I was doing this real quick. I was doing this while we were talking. I was like, you know, I'm just curious. Just a quick Google search. I Google like Monty Python, Holy Grail. And I said, I'm going to click on news to see if anything's happening. It's such an old movie, right? Like what's going to be new? And in the last three weeks, there was actually an article on it's like Game Rant. And just somebody recreated in Minecraft the famous French taunting scene. So like people are still like... You know, doing stuff and copying this stuff to this day, it's still very relevant. And I think that's pretty interesting. It's an influential film. And uh, just to make one last comment about that scene, I believe that using the same cut of him running up that, like charging up the hill in the distance, I think that was supposed to be a joke about film editing. Mm. But yeah, there's there's just way too much that I could I could praise about that film. It's just so didn't follow the format of like, if you gave that film to a studio now, there's no way they'd be like, yeah, you can shoot it like this. It's not like it follows the beginning, middle, end. It's it's absolutely stupid, and I love how stupid it is. Yeah, just look at the beginning. They had that cold open, which looks like it was used stock footage of an old movie, and then it goes into this really weird credit sequence where it's credits, but they're right. they're running a subtext of like Norwegian subtitles underneath it, and that was done literally because they had run out of budget on it. And they were trying to do things to flavor it up. So they gave it that almost Swedish type feel. And then it just descended into the wild colors. And then Mama. if you look at the end of the film, there's no end credits. The film just ends. So a point about right. when it comes to the budget, I think the budget played into a lot of those things that happened during the film. The, the coconuts to replicate the sound of horses. It was an old radio trick that they used to use. That's how they, they would make those sounds of horses galloping on the radio so because of the budget they're not gonna have horses in the film they had like no money so that joke turned out to work really well even the end of the film those armies were essentially just extras i think from a school and then the, the film extras and to have it just end before they can actually have a battle scene i think that was also just a budgetary thing but it kind of worked and I'll, i could talk about the ending at another point but i think there's a, a really interesting fact about well, I should say just a, a new way to look at it where I used to hate the ending, but now I kind of appreciate what I think they were actually doing. Well, tell us about it right now. All right. So, <laughs> so here's what I'm thinking is, and I could be wrong, but the way I look at it as you would watch this film throughout the whole time thinking this is a period piece that's supposed to take place perhaps in the, you know, they've, they've narrowed it down to somewhere between the 900s to I don't know, not, I should say 900 AD to like 1200 AD, 1400 AD. At the end of the film, you have a cop car. <laughs> so 
that totally just throws that whole theory out the window that this was even a, a period piece. And you can maybe even look at it as these were just a bunch of dudes cosplaying and putting together a stupid movie and they commit a murder in the middle of it. And that's why it gets shut down while they're actually trying to do this war scene where like this, the, the cops just show up and they just take everyone into custody without a fight. They're just like, you know, stop that. And he puts the hand in front of the camera and that's the end of the film. At first I was like, wow, this is a BS non end to a movie. And then I realized maybe the cops actually just arrested these dudes because they committed murder while just goofing off in the, in the woods. Because like, even looking at the sets, they're clearly going in circles throughout this movie. Even when they go back to, uh, you know, get the shrubbery, they've already been in this village before. It's almost like either these guys are walking in circles because they're idiots or because they're actually just, this is fourth wall breaking. And the whole fourth wall breaking thing was supposed to be more of a joke in the film with Patsy saying it's only a model. He's supposed to have more lines in that, making references to the crew, etc. But they cut some of those jokes out. And one last joke about that whole thing with the model. Again, this is me just pulling from my memory. I believe that when the crew would create these castles, mm. Arthur would jokingly like knight the, the crew members that did it. And because the winds were so strong up there, they would just blow the, the cardboard over and then Arthur would run the, the crew members through with his sword. You know what's funny about breaking, talking about breaking the fourth wall, I do have to say as a kid when I saw this and I didn't get a lot of stuff, even as a kid watching it where it goes into the cartoon where the monster is chasing them, and then they say, and then this then the animator had a heart attack. Like I still lost it as a kid. Like to me, that's just one of the best scenes, and probably one of the first times I ever saw that fourth wall breaking in a any kind of. And, and it's funny because that's another one of those like this is a BS way to get out of this scenario, mm -hmm. but the joke is perfect because the animator is Terry Gilliam. Like they have the director of the film, the guy who created all of those animated segues, those shorts. He was the one that died. And so after that, there, there is no animation for the rest of the movie. And yeah, it's a wild movie. And when you think about the cops showing up at the end, there's a scene midway through where there's a film historian who you think it's just like an odd clip they put in there until they kill him. And then there's a running gag for a few scenes where like his wife is calling the police and the police are somehow chasing the Knights of the Round Table. It's so many smart jokes in this movie. Like... <laughs> We'll get to some of the fan comments because like Shannon Zauha posted a gif that was just John Cleese saying a blessing from the Lord. John Rakowski said it's a good and not as good as Monty Python's meaning of life, which when I hear criticisms, it's either meaning of life or life of Brian. Ryan Damon said great scenes, great comedy. Don't like the non end, but it's a classic. Mm. I can see the non end. Bartek Ponowicki says it's I. And that's his whole comment. All right. Thank you, brother. <laughs> this is a classic, and we're getting eh, middle of the road. Brian, what's that? Is I? <laughs> Brian Huff said, my personal favorite of the Python films. I share the same sentiment. Joe Mitchell, classic staple in comedy. Only people with an IQ of 90 or lower don't find it funny. That's a little rough, but I mean, we'll take it. I'll take it. Motherfucker. <laughs> Katie Lynn says, still one of my favorite movies of all time. She loves British humor, sarcastic, dry, but witty. Ron Nimi says, all-time classic. Vandal Drummond, one of the greatest satire films ever. Lonnie Smith says, meh, quotable, not exceptionally funny. He must be hitting that 89 IQ at that point. <laughs> oh, yeah. 89 and a half. Give the man some <laughs> 
Chris Zauha, like his wife said, it's his her, his wife's favorite movie. Derek Rolando, five stars at the Tokyo Dome. So you see what I'm saying. They're mostly good reviews. Not much is bad to be said about it. Carney, why don't we go out on a high point? You're such a fan of the film. For anybody that hasn't seen it and hasn't been convinced so far, give them one last push why they got to see this movie. Oh, let's see how quickly I can wrap this up. I think the fact that this film was made when there was such problems with production and tension among the cast and crew that they still put together something that's considered timeless and possibly one of the greatest films of all time. The conditions when making this film are so cold, wet, and miserable. And a lot of the, you know, the armor that you see is actually wool. And, and it was cold and everyone hated it. And cast were fighting to get back to their rooms before everyone else because there's a limited amount of hot water. They're like crawling through mud and shit through the film to try to make this thing. And they hate each other. And they still put together something that if you watch it, you would have no idea how miserable John Cleese in particular was. The jokes, like I said, you might have to watch it multiple times to understand. Like, let's say you have Galahad the Pure that ends up in Castle Anthrax, where he has a bunch of women trying to give him oral sex. I mean, and he's, he's being like, he's, they're trying to save him from this. And the fact that he's Galahad the Pure and you have Sir Brave Sir Robin, I won't spoil what happens to him for the people that have haven't seen it but the one time that he decides not to be brave is when he's at the bridge of death and decides to challenge the the bridge keeper because he thinks the jokes are going to be super easy or the questions i should say should be super easy and the other problems that they had making that film graham chapman detoxing from alcohol while making this film the very first scene they filmed was the bridge of death and he was detoxing so bad that they had to have someone else walk across the bridge for him and he couldn't get alcohol on that set. It's just amazing that like there's no reason this film should have been made. There's no reason this this group should have worked together so well. There's jokes in there that you would have to actually look into it to understand there was more to that scene. Like the bring out your dead scene. You got people with mallets in the back that they were supposed to actually be just like hitting the people that were already dead. The Trojan Rabbit, another one of the great best scenes in the film. I'm pretty sure you can hear power tools going on while they're building the Trojan Rabbit. I, I, you know, if there was a lot more time, like I said, I could talk about this forever. The animated transitions, the way that it flows. The only scene that does not work for me is the three-headed knight. And there's actually a really, there's more to that story that's kind of like, it's messed up. I'll just say real quick, there's supposed to be a three-headed woman tied to the tree that they were allegedly supposed to be having their way with sexually, which they decided this probably isn't a good idea. So we have to cut that stuff to use the scene because we don't have a lot of scenes to use it's the only scene that does not work for me but other than that like i said if you watch this movie and you pay attention you'll find it to hopefully be very intelligent very fourth wall breaking doesn't take itself seriously nor should you it's just there for you know entertainment and i can't think of many more entertaining comedies than monty python and the holy grail well the jokes are fresh in my head because i watched it four times quick this morning and I forgot to bring this up at the top of the show, but next week we will be talking Happy Gilmore that releases on January 11th, January 18th, Team America Review, and on January 25th, we will be discussing the sketch show In Living Color. They don't hold up to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but 
they come close. Guys, we will talk to you next week. All right, so that wraps us up for this week. Thank you again for listening to the Working Fans Podcast. So as always, you can find us on Twitter at Fans Working. Our Facebook page is Working Fans Wrestling Pod. We have email where you can reach out to us and let us know what you think also. That's Working Fans Wrestling Pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Working Fans Wrestling underscore pod. And then as always, please continue to listen Listen to us on Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, all your major platforms. If you're following us on Apple Podcasts, which we are also on now, and YouTube, please make sure you subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It helps us bring you these podcasts where we get to talk to you and talk with you every week.